If you, uh, if you come to us uh, for marriage trouble, if you have marriage trouble and you come to us, not that we'll give you marriage trouble, but if you have marriage trouble and you come to us, uh, we are going to ask you a question. And if you've come to us before, and maybe you're coming to us now, you know the question, and we've asked it so many times, maybe you're annoyed at the question. Um, but if you haven't, here's what the question is. Date night, once a week, are you having it? Now, we don't mean, um, are, you, are you going to a restaurant and spending lots of money? Date night requires no money. You, you can find a table and two chairs or a couch and a coffee table, and that's all you need. Lock the children in a closet or something else, maybe not that drastic, but put them away somewhere and sit down and then look each other in the eye, and the husband first... The husband asks, how are you? And then the wife tells the husband honestly, clearly, with nothing hidden or unsaid, how she's doing. She talks about her job, if she has one, the house, the kids, how she's feeling about him and, and their relationship, all of it. And he listens. So much listening that he's, he can say back to her what she said. He can, he can tell her all the things that she said to him. And then when she's finished talking, they switch places, not, not literally, but then she listens to him as he talks to her. Now, when you're very newly married, when you're freshly married, these kinds of conversations, that's what this is called, it's a, it's a conversation, these kinds of conversations happen naturally. They ha it happens all the time, but have a kid have two kids, have three kids or more, and a job, two jobs, and a mortgage, and then there's no more naturally about it. It doesn't just happen anymore. You've got to commit to it. You've got to make it happen. And when you don't, inevitably, pain, disaffection, frustration, resentment, and in a sense, even that it's no use even working on this thing anymore, because there's just too much, that begins to grow. And that has ripple effects. Your kids feel it. Your church feels it. Even your pets feel it. Everything gets worse. When Jesus said, uh, they, meaning a man and a woman in marriage, they are no longer two, but one. Those weren't just words. He meant those words. Those are true, those are true words. God, when you got married, intermingled your souls. And, and so if you go for weeks or months, or I've even talked to people who've gone for longer than that, without conversation, without communion with each other, things begin to break down. Because you are one flesh, and your flesh is being rent. You only repair that by, by looking each other in the eye and talking and listening. Now, uh, you might wonder where I'm going with this, because if you look down at your text, you know well, Acts chapter 2 doesn't, isn't about marriage between a man and a woman, but Acts chapter 2 is all about the great marriage that every human marriage signifies. Because at Pentecost, and Acts chapter 2 is about what happened at Pentecost, at Pentecost, God joined his son to his bride, the church. 
by the Holy Spirit. He joined them so securely, the, the, the son and his bride, so securely that all the power of the gates of hell will never be able to break that union apart, ever. When you trusted in Jesus, and I hope you've all trusted in Jesus, and when you did, if you have, you were caught up into that union in the very depths of your soul. And you may not have realized it, but that changed everything. I'm sure you noticed some changes, but maybe you didn't know just how much about you changed. You may, have, may not have realized the full ramifications of it. You are a new sort of human being if you're in Christ Jesus. Not like the other human beings. You're a different kind of human being with new needs that can only be satisfied in new ways. And we'll talk about some of those as we go on. For now, let's uh, start by considering the situation in Jerusalem. God has added 3,000 people to the only church in existence. You can see that in verse 41. That church, the only church that was around at the time, only had, before this, 120 people. That's about good shepherd size. If you count up the first service and the second service on a regular Sunday, we'll get around 120 people. Now, just imagine 3,000 people showing up Sunday, on a Sunday. Not, not just to check us out, see how the church is, and maybe go away and not come back. Imagine they're all new believers, and imagine there's no other church in town. So they're not, they have to stay here. They can't go anywhere else. What would we do? Well, I mean, this place, this room here fits max 400 people. So we'd have to squeeze together a lot to do that. But you can fit about 400 people in it. But even so, that's 7.5 sermons on a Sunday morning. And I'm not doing that. So we'll have to build another, another building to handle that kind of crowd. It wouldn't work. Here, I think, it was a little bit easier. Because it seems like the church met together in the temple courts, which could easily handle a crowd of 3,120. Maybe they also, it seems like they did, meet in various houses around, around the city in Jerusalem. Um, but the, the 3,120 people at this point make up what you and I would consider and recognize today as one single congregation. In a few hours, the church went from a tightly knit 120 people, mostly Galilean people, where everyone knows everyone else, who had been forged together by faith and suffering and, and family relations. They were, a lot of them were related to each other because they were from the same, same place. It went from that in a few hours, to a massive church, including Jews from all over the world. And, and could you think about some of the tensions that would be there? The 120 followed Jesus from Galilee. The 3,000 killed him. That's, that's what Peter said earlier, that you, you lent your voices to put him to death, this 3,000. The 120 have been with Jesus. They've heard Jesus. They know his teachings. The 3,000 don't know any of it. They're brand new. The, the 120 from Galilee, they're not impoverished, but they're, they're, not, they're not rich. 
But the 3,000, those are people who could afford a month, probably more than a month's journey for many of them to Jerusalem and then to stay from Pentecost or from Passover all the way to Pentecost. That's, that's not cheap change. These, these people have money. Now, I wonder what it would have been like for that original 120. Uh, you get, I mean, you, you put yourself in their shoes. You, you get comfortable with a, with a people who you know and people who, who know you. Uh, these, these 120 had been together for three years. Uh, they, they'd become something like a family, more than likely. And if you, you know, this is kind of a small church, and everyone knows everyone, and it can be kind of comfortable in, in the various uh, groups that we have, and that's, that's very good. You can be vulnerable with each other in certain places. That's an excellent thing. Uh, but then, and it still happens today, then Jesus brings in these new people. I mean, and you're, if you're a Christian, you're glad about that because you want the church to grow and you want, and you want Jesus uh, to be known by more and more people. But there's also, if, if we're honest, there's also a kind of loss, too, when something like this happens. The old intimacy that was there isn't necessarily there anymore, especially for them. What do you do when something like that happens? Do you just stop going? Do you hole up with the, with the group you're familiar with and leave the other people uh, to their own devices? Do you, do you find another church? Well, I do want you to notice that Jesus, in this first case of building the church, in this congregation, hasn't given anyone those options. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other church. They, they have to make do with the people that are there. There's nowhere else to go. Uh, loving people, caring for people that you know and like and who are familiar to you and you've you related to you for years, that's easy. People do that all the time. You don't have to have any kind of spiritual depth or maturity to do that. That's human. Human beings do that all the time. But the kind of thing that Jesus is requiring of this first century church here, uh, that requires Jesus to do. It requires Jesus and his death. You've got to decide. I don't know this person. I've never met this person, but here this person is. In the church, uh, we've got absolutely nothing in common, and maybe in some cases it does turn out to be this way. In some cases, uh, what you do know of the person you don't especially like, maybe uh, when she opens her mouth, the things that she says are embarrassing. Maybe he's too loud and too obnoxious. But you say, okay, well, Jesus has made this person my sister or my brother. So I need, I need to get over this. I don't like him. I need to get over this. But I don't know how. Well, there's only one way. You say, Jesus, Lord, forgive me. I don't love her like you love her. I don't want to get to know her like you. For some reason, you brought her into my church. But, or I guess, okay, your church. But I don't want to get to know her like, like, like you want me to. Help me to see her and love her through your eyes because I'm not doing it on my own. And then you move toward the other person. It's not easy. But the alternative, if that doesn't happen, the alternative is more painful, actually. 
What would happen if the 120 decided to hole up and kind of shun the 3,000? And not, or not really shun on purpose, just not hang out with them all that much. What would happen is there a rent, a tear would begin to form in this new church. And ultimately what would happen is resentments would begin to, to, to flare up. That always happens when there's a kind of faction that's formed. Resentments would flare up and uh, tempers would be, be lost, all kinds of bad things, and more pain would be the result. But see, Jesus, and it's kind of frustrating that he does this, but Jesus builds his church in such a way that the people already in the church have to figure out how to love those he adds, and the people who he adds have to learn how to love the people who are already there. And, and that might seem like a bug, but it's not a bug. It's a feature because it requires you to go to Jesus for help with every addition, and that's a good thing. So God sends adds 3,000 people in one day to the 120. And we, in verse 42, we can see what they were doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and, and the prayers. If you just walked in and you wonder why I had my shirt open like this, it's not because I'm like trying to be Superman. I had my mic in here. I couldn't, figure, I couldn't get it out. So anyway, long story. Anyway, go back and read chapter 1. Not now, but later. Go back and read chapter 1. Uh, before the 3,000 were added, what were the 120 doing? If you go back and you read chapter 1, you're going to find that they were together in one place. They were praying together. They were breaking bread. They didn't say explicitly, but we can assume they were. And they were listening to the apostles. That's the same thing they're doing now, after the 3,000 come. Because the reason I point that out is because you might expect that with 3,000 new people, there would be some kind of shift in strategy, some kind of new vision for, for being the church. But there's, there's no shift. They do the same things. And, and what that suggests is that the things listed there in, 40, in verse 42 are not things that are incidental to the church, or unnecessary to the church, or not things the church can do if she likes, but not do if she feels like not doing them. It suggests that these things are constitutive, that they're core, that they're essential to who the church is and what the church does. Uh, notice that word, it's two words actually in English, devoted themselves. It's one word and a strong word in, in Greek. And the idea there, communicated by that word, is that while, of course, the 3,120 people had other things to do, they, they take baths, they get dressed, they brush their teeth, they comb their hair, they go to work and do all the regular things that people have to do, uh, the, the things listed in verse 42, however, come above, before, and undergird all the other things. If, if, if something has to give way, and we all have busy lives, and sometimes we have to say, okay, I can't do this anymore, I can't do that anymore, because my life has gotten too crowded. Um, if, if life were too busy for them, if something had to give way, these four things that are listed would not be among those things given away. Everything, some other things would have to be given up. You know that you're not devoted to something, when everything else easily crowds out that one thing. 
you know you're not devoted to something if, you know, if the mood just has to hit you just right and the weather has to be just right and the stars have to be aligned in just the right way in order to do it, you know you're not devoted to it. <laughs> but these people are devoted to this thing. So let's see what they devoted themselves to. They they devoted themselves first and foremost, and it's not an accidental first and foremost. Uh, They they devoted themselves first and foremost uh, to the apostles' teaching. In fact, if you don't have that, you can't have any of the other things on the list. Uh, And it's interesting, in light of some of the contemporary conversations, I want you to notice that Luke doesn't say they devoted themselves to Jesus' teaching. Because some today want to draw, or want you to draw, a distinction between Jesus and his apostles. Well, yeah, that's Paul. Well, yeah, that's Peter. I want to hear what Jesus has to say. You follow Paul, I follow Jesus. Well, uh, Jesus said explicitly, Jesus said, Whoever does not receive the ones I send, the sent ones of the apostles, cannot receive me. Uh, Jesus, you might... Which book of the New Testament did Jesus write with his own hand? Which one? Anyone know? Zero, right. He didn't write any of those. He didn't write any of the New Testament books with his own hand. He breathed out the New Testament books through the writings of his apostles. That's why apostolic teaching takes first place always, because it's Jesus teaching teaching us through the apostles. We would know nothing about prayer. We'd know nothing about the breaking of the bread. We'd know nothing about the fellowship without the apostolic words about those things through which Jesus teaches us. And so they devoted themselves to hearing the 12 apostles teach. They devoted themselves to that, to attending to their teaching. And, this is all so involved in this, they devoted themselves to what they taught. That's important. You, you to, both those things are there. You could devote yourself to being present for the apostolic teaching without also actually attending to it with the fullness of your mind, uh, listening carefully to what's, what's said. Or, on the other hand, you could devote yourself to what the apostles say so much so that you decide that you know enough and that you don't need to be present to hear them anymore. People wander off on both sides of that. Hey, I'm here. I'm here in church. I'm attending the, 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 the sermonizing. Um, but I don't like it. I, honestly, I don't like sermons at all. They don't help me. And so when you start talking, I start scrolling. I, I start looking through my, uh, through my phone. I'm here for the community. Or I'm here for the Eucharist, communion. Or I'm here for whatever it might be. So I'm attending to, I'm devoting myself to this, but I'm not, I'm not actually paying, paying much attention. Or you might say, and actually a woman said this to me last year, um, I've been in church all my life. I've been in church so much, and I've heard everything already. I know everything that you're going to say. I've probably read my Bible more than you, and she probably had. She, she's, yeah, she knew her Bible. But, but she didn't say, so why should I be here? Both those attitudes suggest that the people who have them don't quite know what's going on when you're listening to the apostles. Don't quite get the relational aspect of it. This is you hearing from and communing with 
with Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, just to maybe get a sense of it, I'll try the, one of those two things, both those things out on Anne this week during our date night. I'll just, our date night now is Wednesday, it's shifted, so I'll take my computer and I'll sit down in my chair and I'll open up my computer and I'll get onto Netflix and then she'll say, hey, uh, honey, isn't it, isn't tonight our date night? And I'll say, hey, honey, I've listened to you already for 20 years. <laughs> what more do I need to know? I know everything. We can stop talking now. And, and, and your words, well, frankly, they're not all that interesting to me. I, I, I pretty much know what you're going to say because you say the same thing every week. You can talk to me, I guess. You can talk all you want, but I'm going to sit here and watch the episode three of Battlestar Galactica while you're talking, so I might not get it all. <laughs> See, the, 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 the assumption here and the people, on the part of the people who are devoted to this, is that when the apostles teach, Jesus is speaking to them. And, and the same thing can be true of a sermon. When a sermon, when, it, when anyone preaching, it preaches something that's true and in keeping with what the apostles teach, the same thing is true. Jesus is also speaking to you. So you need to attend to it and hear him. So they devoted themselves to that, to, to the apostles' teaching, and they also devoted themselves to the fellowship. That is, they devoted themselves to fellowshipping, that's being there, and to the fellowship itself, to the body, to its well-being, to its health. They wanted to build it up. Uh, don't, do not tame that word fellowship. I think Christians sometimes do that. I remember when I was a new Christian, I was invited to a Super Bowl party, and I went, and it was okay. I'm not a great party person, but I had a great, an okay, okay time. We sat around, we ate pizza, and we had chips and all kinds of things. And then afterwards, one of, one of the guys said, oh, we had such a great time of fellowship. And I, I said, we were just watching football, man. We were just watching football and eating chips. I didn't think that was fellowshipping. Uh, but I guess it was, and that's kind of how we sometimes use, use that word. The Greek word, however, is koinonia. It's, it's the same word we get communion from. The fellowship, the communion, is, is the mystical, spiritual union by which Jesus has joined you to his body and to everyone in it. You may not feel that all the time. You probably don't. You may not feel anything special because the reason you don't is because it's your normal. It's your new normal now that you're a new person. But because that's happened to you, the church isn't something you can painlessly neglect. We're going to talk more about this in a minute, but, but you have been remade and joined to the body. And I don't know, you can try this when you get home, but if you cut off your finger and throw it down on the floor, it doesn't do so well. Your finger doesn't do well cut off from the body. And the same thing is true about you. You're a member of the body. You don't do well when you're cut off. To be devoted to the communion, to the fellowship, means, as it did for these 3,000 and 120, that everything else revolves around it. So, so for these people, the communion, the fellowship, uh, wasn't the coleslaw that they had on the side of their prime rib. The communion was the prime rib, and everything else in their life was the coleslaw that went along with it. And you might say, well, I've got my family over here, and I've got my job over there, and I've now and I have the church over there. And I would say to you in return, don't atomize 
those things. Don't wall those things off from each other. Being in the communion, being in communion, is a little bit like being in a very small village. Or or in this case, I guess a larger one, but think of it as a small village. You have your house in the village, and you have your job in the village, uh, but you live all those little things out in the context of the village. And in this case, in the context of the community, in the context of the communion. Now, and this might seem like an aside, but I feel like it's my duty to tell you this and to warn you about it because it's happened. I've seen it happen. Um, I'd like to make a suggestion. I know we live in a very transient world and that um, very often, especially if you live in Binghamton, you think, wow, I'd love to live somewhere else. Um, I'd love to go somewhere else. And, um, but let me just say, because the communion is that to which God has bound your soul, the chief factor in deciding when or whether or where to live when you retire or graduate or looking for a new job is not what's best for your career and it's not where your desire takes you. It's the communion. It's the fellowship. And I say that because I know lots of people who have told me they just want to... uh, yeah, I'll, I'll use, so it's nobody, so it was a sound familiar to anybody, I'll just make something up. Um, well, I just want to live on the beach. And so what they'll do is they'll quit their job here, they'll find a job near the coast, they'll get a house on the beach, and that's their dream. They've always wanted to be on the beach. Um, but what's happened also, and they may not notice it was going to happen, is they've left the communion into which their hearts have been interwoven. Spiritual bonds are dislocated and cut off, and, they've, and they haven't really taken thought to whether there's a good, solid communion in the new place. And so it, it, they're, for a long time, they're hurting. So don't, don't do that. Be careful. Now, okay, I'll move off from that. Now, they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. Uh, the, that could just indicate a meal, but I think the article there, the, indicates that it isn't just a normal meal. On the night before Jesus died, you remember this, Jesus took bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, and uh, he said, this is the, uh, the blood of the new covenant um, for the forgiveness of sins, poured out for you and for many. Drink this in remembrance of me, or do this in remembrance of me. And the language that he used in both cases indicated an ongoing, never-ceasing kind of eating and drinking. The language here in Acts chapter 2 indicates that this, the breaking of the bread, is a regular component, a regular part of their life together. I don't think it, reading this language, it would, it, would, it would be right to say that maybe they got together for the breaking of the bread once a month or once a quarter. It seems like whenever they met, they were having the breaking of the bread. Now, um, the bread and the wine are not just symbolic memory aids so that you can remember Jesus' death on the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that when you drink the wine, when you drink the cup, you participate, and the word there is koinonia, communion, you commune, you participate in Christ's blood. And that when you take the bread and you eat it, you participate, you have communion in Christ's body. The wine and the bread taken in faith do not become something else. The wine doesn't become blood and the the bread doesn't become 
uh, flesh, but, but when you take them trusting in Jesus and seeking his help, he feeds you and he helps you and he washes you clean with his body and blood in a spiritual and, and mystical way, in a way that he does nowhere else but here or, at, or wherever you take communion. Um, that's why you need it more than once a month or once a quarter. And then when they got together, they had the prayers. Notice the article there as well. Uh, prayers, uh, these would be prayers they all knew and said regularly. Uh, probably they were prayers taken from the synagogue and the Lord's Prayer uh, that he taught them added in. We know that because we have some examples of some very early church services, and they were using memorized, kind of rote prayers from the synagogue. Now that might seem to a modern person an inauthentic, insincere way to worship. Because we've gotten the idea that unless prayer is spontaneous, um, that it's not authentic and it's not quite as spiritual as it could be. And that's a very strange way to think. When someone gives you something nice, what do you say? Thank you. How many times a day do you say thank you? Hopefully many, unless you're really rude, but hopefully you say thank you many times a day and, and in many situations. And um, my guess is that when you say thank you, even though you said it a million times, you still mean it. It's not insincere just because they're the same words said over and over again. They're not meaningless or inauthentic, and you don't have to come up with some new way of saying it. You can just say thank you. Now, I hope uh, in your prayer life that, that you often pray and pour out your heart to God in your own words and you, and you tell him everything. But it's also good, and on top of that, to let your heart and mind be trained by ancient words that flow from his word, which is what our, our liturgy has. Now, you can easily misread and then misapply verse 42. You can say, okay... I need to read my Bible every day. That's being devoted to the apostles' teaching. I need to spend time with my Christian friends. That's being devoted to the fellowship. I need to have dinner with my Christian friends, and that's being uh, devoted to the breaking of the bread. And I need to make sure I have my quiet time every day. And I hope, I hope you do all of those things. But this passage is not about arranging your private, individual life. Apostolic teaching. Fellowship, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers. What's happening here right now? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is happening right here, right now. The 3,120 devoted themselves to, to this. And it looked actually a lot like this too, because as I said, they took the prayers from the synagogue, which were kind of, which were wrote, and, and they add in the three readings they read in the synagogue and the psalm and then a sermon, just like they had in the synagogue, and they added at the end of that the, the Eucharist. So it looked a lot like what we're doing right now. Now, I've, I, I, let me say, if you're feeling alienated, if you're feeling worn thin, if you're feeling far from God, if you're feeling lonely, well, I talked to someone recently who was feeling all those things, and this person comes here maybe once a month, maybe twice. Now, if you have a job or you're sick or something, I, that's a totally different situ situation. Jesus will take care of you. But if you've got a choice and you just decide not to devote yourself to these things, and you're feeling dislocated and out of balance, that's why you feel that way. Jesus has appointed this feast for your soul. And when you neglect it, 
you're not going to feel right. Now, if you're in that place, the good news is confess, tell Jesus that you, uh, you, have, you have set your way above his and repent. And the great news is that he died on the cross for your sins. He'll forgive you without any shame or recrimination, and he'll heal and nourish and strengthen you. So do that if you need to. Now, verse 43, we'll go a little bit quicker through these next ones. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Luke uh, gives some examples of the apostolic signs and wonders. We see one in chapter 3 of, of, of Acts. But there were many, many more that the apostles did, and they were all public, but we don't have record of all of them. But they did so many, and they were so public, that awe, and the Greek word there is fear, the one we get fear from, fear fell on every soul, meaning the souls of those who are not in the church, who are outside of the church. And I think if you think about it for a second, you can see why fear fell on everyone who heard them. Uh, the apostles are doing the very same works that Jesus did, who they crucified. While they're proclaiming, this Jesus who you crucified is risen, he's been exalted, he's reigning from heaven, and he's doing these works right now before your face through us. And so if you're seeing that, and you were among the people in the crowd saying, crucify him, of course they're afraid. Every single miracle is an indictment, evidence of their guilt. You killed your Messiah. You killed God's son, is what those miracles would say. But, thanks be to God, the apostles would also say, but by his blood that you shed, you can be clean and forgiven. So confess and repent and you'll have mercy. They feel fear, and, and I'm, I'm, I think it's a good thing, because Jesus loves them. When Jesus uses his word to pierce through your defenses and self-justifications, and you feel afraid because of your guilt, uh, shaken to the bones because of the reality of your sin and need, that's good. That's because Jesus loves you. He wants you to repent and turn to him and live. So heed that and, and do that. Now, it wasn't only the miracles that caused a stir. You can see this in verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, they were together. This isn't a commune, though. It's 3,120 people. It's not easy to live all together. It's, they probably lived in different places, but they did come together every day, I think. And when they did, well, a couple of weeks ago I gave you an assignment to go home after church and to read the whole Old Testament, and I'll tell you to do the same thing. Go back home this afternoon, read the entire Old Testament, and you'll notice that God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. First, he sends the prophets to Israel because they worship other gods, and, and God wants them to, to trust and, and rely on him. But second, he sends the prophets because the leaders and, and those with wealth take take possession of widows' houses. They steal inheritances from orphans. They, they rip off the aliens and the strangers in the land. And, you know, in, in those days, without a family in the ancient world, you had really no defense. You were easy prey. Well, what we read here is nothing like the old Israel. This is, this is brand new. Those who have lots of things sell them 
and they give the proceeds to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, now this is not, this is not forced, so don't, don't listen to anyone who tells you that you need to vote for the government to take rich people's money by force of law and distribute it to the poor because of Acts 2. That's, that's not what Acts 2 is about. In fact, Acts chapter 5, verse 4, tells us that this is all purely voluntary. Now, why would people voluntarily do that? That's a good question. What's come over them? I think the things that come over them is the same thing that came over Zacchaeus in the gospel reading. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to come home and, and have a meal with you. And, the, and Zacchaeus was so overjoyed by the forgiveness, he said, oh, wow, I'm giving back all the things that I stole. I'm going to be generous from now on. I think the same thing is going, going on here. They have all been made to see. These people have all been made to see. I owe God obedience, and I've not given it to him for a second. My debt to God is infinite. My ability to pay that debt, I don't have any. But God in Jesus Christ has paid the debt for me. To come to Jesus is to have your debts forgiven, your sins paid for, and that changes how you think about those who don't have much, who need help, because you were helped. You were saved. And even more, Jesus has poured out his spirit upon these people. He's turned each heart of stone to flesh. And so his compassion for the, the poor and the needy has become their compassion. Now, I, I talk to other pastors a lot. I just came back from a clergy conference um, a retreat, and they tell me about their congregations, and I, I want to say to you, um, you are a generous, a generous people. Now, I'm not just talking about the missions budget, and that's, that's a good thing that we have that, but I'm not just talking about that. When I let you know that someone needs help with rent, or with paying off a debt, or with food, I've been here for 20 years, 20 years. Every single time I've let something like that be known, whatever has been needed has come in. 2020, when COVID was just hitting, we didn't know what was going to happen, but we knew that people couldn't go to work. Before I said anything, many of you sent in money, lots of money, anticipating, knowing people are going to need help. I know a number of you quietly directly gives to specific people that you know to be in need. So people eat, drink, have clothes and shelter because of your kindness. And that's, that's pleasing to God. And I commend you for that. Shedding your possessions to feed the hungry brings glory and honor and praise to Jesus who shed his blood to forgive your sins and who gives us his own body to eat. There are, there are wealthy people, people here at Good Shepherd. Good Shepherd's not a rich church by any means, but there are wealthy people here. But I've noticed that those who have money don't shut themselves off socially from those who, who don't have any money. Those who have money don't shut themselves off from those who don't. And I've noticed that those who don't have money, I, I haven't heard a lot of resentment toward those who do. That's not something that happens in the world. That is the power of Christ at work in this congregation. And it's a, it's a good thing to see. All right, 
day by day, verse 46 and 47, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having, their fa having favor with all the people. Uh, does verse 46 tell us the where, how, and when of verse 42? Some people think that. Or is this additional material? So in verse, verse 42, we're told they had the breaking of the bread, and, um, and that could be communion. And maybe verse 46 is just telling us more about communion, or it could be talking about more informal meals. We just don't know. There's a, lot, there's a big debate about that. It could be read either way. Uh, the point, however, that Luke wants you to see is that they were together, eating, drinking, and worshiping, and they received their food gratefully, gladly, and with generous hearts. So let me ask you, have you ever received your food ungratefully, sourly, ungenerously? I have. In fact, I can do it pretty easily. Oh, I can go to Applebee's. That's about all I can afford ever, uh, right now. And I can go sit down at Applebee's and I can uh, wonder why I can only eat at Applebee's, why so-and-so, the other person I know, gets to go to Rimlick's every, every Sunday af after church. And, uh, and if I do that, I'm not enjoying Applebee's very much. When from time to time I come to think that God may not really take care of me like he says he will, um, that turns out to be those times when I receive things greedily. I'm not going to give anything away because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow and I can't trust God to help me out. To receive food with gratitude and gladness and generosity, well, that only happens when you know that everything you have comes directly to you from God, that you deserve judgment. And instead, he's given you food. He's given a nice plate of food for you. There's food and there's drink and there's a table and there's brothers and sisters and Christ Jesus your shepherd has set these things down on your plate because it's the very best thing for you to have just this meal at just this moment. And because your, your shepherd is Christ, you don't have to worry, what shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? Because pagans run after those things. You know your shepherd's going to take care of you. And so you can seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and give freely and everything you need will be added to you. That's what seems to be happening at this church in Acts chapter 2. No wonder people look in at the church from the outside with favor. Now that won't last. As the church preaches the cross, Jesus and his resurrection and his life and death for sinners and tells people to repent, the favor in Jerusalem is going to wane. But for now, people see these things that the church is doing and they approve. That's good. Because when Jerusalem does finally turn on the church, turn against the church, it's going to be because of Jesus. If we're going to be hated, and we will be, let's be hated for Jesus' sake, not because we're tight-fisted. That's why the first church was hated when it was. So, let me ask you. Gratefulness, gladness, generosity, devotion to the apostles' teaching and to the rest, do you find yourself falling short of any of those? So you've taken a look at this text. I do. This is an ideal text. This is a, a rule text. Uh, Luke is going to show us later that uh, there are sinners in that church too, just like there are in ours. But Luke presents here a rule, a model. 
And like all rules and models in Scripture, they're meant for your good. This is how you should live. But it's also meant to drive you to the source of those things when you find you don't have them. So, today, examine yourself in light of the light of this word and go to Jesus and say, Lord, if, I, if this is you, I don't have a glad and generous heart. I'm not grateful for things. Lord, I don't want to devote myself to these things or even that person who you've added to our number, but I also know that you've died for me and love me. So please forgive me and help me. And he will. Stop and pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We ask you, Father, to help us as a church to reflect the goodness of Christ in all that we do, in our generosity, in our love for one another. We pray that you will help us to, um, to not uh, form factions or to be insular, but to always be welcoming to those you bring in. Um, and we do confess that we uh, sometimes are not, not that way. We ask you to help us and to forgive us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.